Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. time these fans that are packed into Truist Park see Freddie Freeman in a Braves uniform here at home. 3-2 pitch is hit high and long gone by Freddie Freeman. 5-4 Atlanta. 3-1 pitch. That's inside and this game is tied. A bases loaded walk to Martin Maldonado after the intentional pass to Bregman. And it's 5 5 here in the fifth of game five. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Conventions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. Today is Monday, the first day of November. And there is a day off in the World Series. Atlanta is up three games to two as everybody travels back to Houston. Game six will be in Texas tomorrow, Tuesday evening. Game seven, if necessary, on Wednesday evening. Matt, I want to ask you, obviously, we'll recap what's happened and look ahead. But I want to ask you, how how would you be feeling if you were either a fan of Atlanta or an employee or someone associated with them? Do you look at what happened over the three games there as, well, we went home with one starting pitcher and we won two games out of three, that's pretty good. Or is it, well, we won the first two, and then we hit a grand slam in the first inning yesterday, and we blew it, and now we are maybe not feeling so great going back to the other ballpark. Uh, definitely more of the latter, just given the given the history of the Braves and kind of the whole you know Atlanta sports narrative that has really kind of taken on taken on a life of its own. But I I, I think that like especially after the after the um, the, the grand slam in the first inning yesterday and it felt like oh this is going to be a party like we're 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 winning tonight this is it to end up where they did has to put a little bit of a pit in your stomach in a vacuum you know they should feel good they want if you told them if you told them you know four days ago hey you're going to go back to houston up three two with freed and ian anderson lined up on full rest you would have said great but given that moment um and where things stood after that duvall home run you're definitely feeling a little bit queasy right now. I love the fact. Did you did you see the did you see the the last time a team hit a grand slam in the World Series and lost? Did you see that and what game that was? Well, I also follow Sarah Langs on Twitter, so yes, <laughs> it was nineteen eighty eight game one, right? Yeah, the Kirk Gibson game. The Kirk Gibson game. <laughs> that is not from a from a from a from a mojo standpoint for whatever that's worth to be associated with the team who gave up the uh, the. Uh, Kirk Gibson home run is not a place you really want to be. What I'm talking about is in game one of the 1988 World Series, the Oakland A's in the second inning of that game, granted, the Dodgers took a 2-0 lead in the first inning of that game. So it's it's a little different. They were up 2-0 in the top of the second. Jose Canseco hit a grand slam to put the A's up 
four two, and I'm sure in that moment, I mean the 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 A's were the dominant team in baseball that year. The Dodgers were had upset the Mets in the NLCS. They kind of felt like a little bit just like, hey, just happy to be here. Not exactly a star-studded lineup. And I'm sure at that moment when Canseco hit the home run, everyone in the ballpark was like, all right, this is it. It's a fait accompli. The A's are going to win this series. They're going to crush them. And then, of course, the Dodgers clawed back. Kirk Gibson hits the, the two-run home run off Eckersley to win the game. And then the Dodgers go on to win the series in five games. So here we are now. What, what about you? What would your, your take be as someone associated with the Braves? I think I think it's exactly what you said. <laughs> Listen, if there's any, I, I made a mistake last night watching the game. If there's anything I should have learned just as a baseball fan and also because we've talked about it on like every podcast for the last couple of weeks, momentum is not a thing, right? Especially in this series. And yet when he hit that grand slam after the, after the Braves had won the first two games of the series, it felt to me like, oh, the air is out of the balloon. This is over. There are tweets now I will regret because I dug up like, oh, hey, Pablo Sandoval is going to get a World Series ring. Like it felt like it was over, you know, and uh, very clearly it's not. And I don't want to say now like, oh, momentum's in the favor of the Astros because what did we just talk about? Momentum's not a real thing. That that was actually it's worse, though, because so Sarah tweeted 18 and three teams are 18 and three in World Series history when they hit a grand slam. Right. One loss was obviously last night. One loss was in 1988, as you just said. And the other one was in 1956. The Yankees uh, lost 13-8 in game two after Yogi Berra had hit a grand slam. And that means this is the first time in history a team has ever hit a grand slam in a game where they could have won the World Series and lost. That has never happened before. And I get it. It's not like indicative of anything. It's not predictive of anything. But after the way, it's not even just that. Like, So they blow the lead and it's tied. And then Freddie Freeman hits one to the sun and you think, okay, man, you're back in it. Like local hero, Freddie Freeman. And then you lose that. That's the one I think that that really hurts. We're going to go through each of the three games, uh, three, four and five that have happened since our last show. First, we will take a quick break and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Altuve, first up in the sixth. A strikeout from Minter, one away. Takes strike three. Jason Castro, pinch hitting. Strikes out. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimension podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We're going to recap the three games that have happened since we last did our show. And look ahead, obviously, to the remainder of the series. Matt, is it possible to talk about Game 3, 1-2-0 by Atlanta, without delving into the capital letter, the discourse around pitching? <laughs> no. If you were no, asleep, or I don't know, on the moon, maybe you didn't notice that Ian Anderson was lifted after five no-hit innings. I, people had thoughts about that. <laughs> yes, yes, they did. And I'll say, before we get into that, I will say, on Saturday morning, 
uh, I was out with my kids. I was like not paying attention to Twitter at all, and I was so glad. I like it was. I was like the uh, the 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 gif of a brand, uh, Grandpa Simpson going into the burlesque house and then walking right back out. I, I like <laughs> nice logged. Out, I logged out to Twitter. <laughs> I saw people freaking out about uh, a column by Ken Rosenthal, and I was just like, I'm out. I'm going but, back. But it wasn't just. <laughs> it wasn't just Ken. There was like 30 of those those same articles and the thing that got me the most and i i should say i'm a huge fan of ken rosenthal is um atlanta won the game (laughs) he didn't lift him and then they kick it away they they won the game and i you know what's funny to me is and they give they won the game and they pitched a shutout they didn't give up a run that's right so (laughs) i i was talking my dad was up this weekend and he's like a baseball fan but he mostly only follows the mets you know he's not like a serious fan where he's watching every other game like i would every night but even so he had the world series game on and i think kind of partially in the background and um i think he had maybe checked out a little bit and i explained to him what had happened and he's like oh yeah but that guy didn't actually look that good throwing the no hitter i'm like yes exactly thank you for paying attention ian anderson threw five no hit innings um, on 76 pitches, which is great, but he also walked three guys. He hit one. He was not anywhere near the strike zone most of the time. I mean, good on him for getting the job done. This is my favorite quote. I saw a whole bunch of like you're asking the managers and the players. The New York Post had this one from Dusty Baker after the game, and he was asked, uh, "Hey, were your guys like excited to see Ian Anderson leave? Because usually you're like, okay, this guy's no hitting us. I'd rather see anybody else." And Dusty says, "Not really," <laughs> which I think should tell you. Um, a whole lot about it. I mean, I I think this opened up like a whole can of worms about like the role of starting pitchers and should we have rule changes and this and that. And like, obviously those are all bigger picture things we can talk about. But I think in this particular game, this all comes back to the fact that he allowed four base runners, right? Three walks, a hit by pitch and no hits. If that had been like one bloop hit and two walks, and one hit by pitch, it's not functionally different. He didn't pitch any different, but we're not having like 5% of these conversations because it's not a no hitter, which by the way, he was never, ever, 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 ever going to finish. Like we weren't <laughs> cost a shot at seeing history. That history was not going to happen. He's still yeah, a rookie. Right. He's like three times past his innings pitch last year. No, not to mention the fact that almost certainly his, his spot in the lineup would have come up in a, in a, in a close game and they would have pinched it for him. But really more importantly, and I think I think Brian Snicker deserves a lot of credit because one of the biggest mistakes you see managers make all the time is they'll put a pitcher in, they'll, they'll let a pitcher start an inning, and then the leadoff hitter gets off, gets on, and they're like, oh, he's out. It's like if that is your limit, if that's what you're thinking, if, if that's what you're thinking, like if he's going to get out the first time in trouble, then you really don't really believe in what he's got going on to begin with. So you might as well just take him out and give the new reliever a clean inning. And that's what he did, right? It was, he ended the fifth inning. It was the bottom of, of the Astros lineup. So it was going to be Jose Altuve leading off the sixth inning. I would say Jose Altuve against a like worn down Ian Anderson, third time through the lineup, at least 40% likely to get reach base. What do you, what do you think is a yeah. reasonable, like 45? So, something like that. I, I mean, you mentioned third time through the order and that's certainly a part of it, but I think people maybe relied on that as a bit of a crutch because it's not just that, right? It's like Anderson didn't look that great. And I just, I don't think we talk enough about the effects of last year's season on this season. All of these guys, the ones who are still pitching, it's November, right? The season's not over yet. These guys are like three, four, five times past where they pitched last year. And again, remember who the managers are in in these (laughs) games. Dusty Baker and Brian Snicker, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm going to guess, are combined like 140 years old. You know, this is not, you know, 
32 year old nerd manager comes in and, and what everybody wanted to accuse Kevin Cash of last year, right? These guys are, are basically there. This is the eye test over numbers in some sense, because you could watch Anderson and say, he didn't actually look that great. And you could watch Luis Garcia who got pulled out of that game pretty early too. And say, well, his velocity was down like four miles an hour. You know, they're like, we're using our gut. I don't actually trust these guys. Isn't that the entire point of trying to win a world series game? Yeah, I, th- I think that's what frustrated me. And this is, and you know, you brought up the, the Kevin Cash thing with Blake Snell last year. And I mean, there was it's different than that because Blake Snell was legitimately looked legitimately dominant in that game. So like that's the thing. It's like whatever you think of the quote unquote discourse, there's a time to have that conversation. This game was not that time. The Blake Snell was a better example of like what we're talking there about you here. It, you, you know, you like perfectly this said. Is, this is not the example that we should pull out as like oh, you know. Uh, starting pitching is ruined. And unfortunately, and like, I think we should move on because like we can get bogged down in this. Everyone wants to talk about all these different rules to make pitchers uh, pitch longer in a game. Just because you want them to pitch longer doesn't mean it's going to act. We can't just like make them pitch longer. We're just going to get a lot less effective starts, which isn't good either, which isn't good either. (laughs) But um, credit to the Braves. They pitched a shutout against a really good offense. And um, it it was, I actually thought it was a good, I I was a little disappointed because I thought it was a pretty compelling game. You know, it it moved. There was these, there was a lot of intrigue in terms of decisions and like some key moments in the game. I thought it was a pretty good game, but it it was totally overshadowed by this discussion. Yeah, I think of the five games so far, that's the one I've enjoyed watching the most. Like I I found it to be the most interesting. Uh, And I, I think just quickly going back to what you said, you're absolutely right that we can have these big conversations about what we want pitchers to be. But that game is not it. You know, like two gassed rookies a billion innings into their season against two good lineups is not the time to be saying, well, somebody's going to throw a complete game. It's just never going to happen. So game four, um, here's a real question for you. How much, if anything, did you know about game four starter Dylan Lee before you were obligated to go look up information about him? Zero. I knew nothing about him. <laughs> it's pretty much the same here. Um, I I vaguely remembered he he failed to make the Marlins roster and got cut and got picked up as a you know minor league. And I looking at his numbers in the minors is actually surprisingly good. So maybe the Astros found something and maybe he's going to be a guy or like a reliever. You mean the Bra- you mean the Braves found something? Uh, excuse me, the Braves something. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, he gets one out, not so great. And then Kyle Wright comes in and Kyle Wright actually looked pretty good. You know, four and two thirds innings. Uh, one run allowed, like a lot of credit to him. And then, you know, the this was the game. This was, I think, maybe of the five games, the one I got the least enjoyment out of watching. It's like just not a whole lot happened until the seventh inning when, you know, Dansby Swanson and Jorge Soler went back to back. I guess we should point out quickly that uh, neither one of us had any confidence in Zach Granke doing anything. And he was like surprisingly OK, you know, four scoreless innings and even got a hit. Um, but like the entire, I, I think I, I think I had a little more faith than, than you did. I was, I was, I was not shocked to see what he did. Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, like, you know, Altuve crushed a home run, which was, you know, a blast. And then you get to the seventh inning and Christian Javier comes in, strikes out Duval, and then Swanson hits a dinger and then Soler pinch hitting hits a dinger. And that's basically the extent of the game right there. Um, I saw a lot of people and it's funny, you would think that if you know me, I would be like fully on board with this thought and I'm not sure that I am. When uh, Soler hit that home run, it was over the shorter part of the fence in left center. And Jordan Alvarez playing left did not look great. Actually banged himself up a little bit. And I saw some people, people I respect, saying a, a better outfielder catches that ball. And I'm, it, it's possible, certainly. Like if you got there a little more quickly than he did and you set your feet and jump, like it's a catchable ball, sure. But I didn't really buy into like it's an expectation that home run should have been robbed. 
I agree with you. I, I thought that like a really good defense. I mean, whoever like the gold center. Who do you think? Who's the gold center of like defensive left fielders these days? I can't um, even name a left fielder. Honestly, uh, there, <laughs> there are no left fielders anymore. But like you know, like a great corner outfielder, I think might make that play. But if they made it, you'd be like, wow, that was an amazing play. You know, so like it's not like I didn't feel as though that was a situation where Jordan Alvarez's um, defense cost them. I felt like this was a game where. I felt, you know, it felt like in the discussion um, on Twitter during the game and post game was like really questioning some decisions by like, you know, oh, should Dusty Baker have brought this guy in here? And like, I got to say, this was the game. If the, if the Astros lose this series, this is the game they, they should look back on with regrets. Right? Yes, and, like, I, I and, you can, and you cannot you cannot blame Dusty Baker for the fact that they had what bases loaded with one out against basically a couple of four A pitchers. And they scored one run in the first inning. They could have blown the game open in the first inning. The Astros, um, they scored one run off Dylan Lee and then Kyle Wright, who also at this point, even though he's a high draft pick, has basically been a four-way pitcher and has not really broken through. And they couldn't do any damage against these guys. And that's like, you know, they needed to, they needed to score more than two runs in that game. Uh, and it, it came back and bit them. Yeah. By the way, the best defensive left fielder is probably Tyler O'Neill from St. Louis. I, he could have made that catch. I certainly would not put it out there that – he should have been expected to. Um, no, I agree with you. This was, you know, we, we the tide has changed, I think, in a little bit in what I'm about to say. But for the beginning of the series, a big part of the discussion points, at least for Houston, is just that, like, their big bats weren't hitting, you know? And that's kind of still true for Bregman, as we'll get to in a minute. That was that game is where it started to change a little bit because, like, Altuve hit that home run, you know, and Correa got a hit. Uh, Grail walked twice. But you're right. Like, opportunities left on the table. And, you know, when you... When you get Dylan Lee on the mound and he doesn't do much and you knock him out right away and you get more than I expected you would out of Zach Greinke and you still can't come away with that win to go down 3-1, like that is a, that's a killer for me. And then last night's game, so obviously, you know, 9-5 Houston wins. Um, when Duvall goes deep in the first inning and you finally get like, you know, Fran Valdez was again, not great. Five runs in two and two thirds innings. You kind of think, as I said before, well, that's it. You know, congratulations to the Braves. Uh, but there were a couple of interesting decisions in this game. So Alex Bregman gets knocked down to seventh in the lineup. I don't actually think his issues are about where he hits in the lineup. We'll get to him a little more deeply in a little bit, but I kind of liked that Dusty was not just going to, you know, sit there quietly and let things happen. And there were three, I think, different interesting decisions in the game. Um, The first one, and I, I sort of disagree with Braves fans on this, but I'd be interested to know what you think. So Tucker Davidson starts the game, you know, gets through the first pretty easily, uh, bottom of the first, you know, grand slam, it's four, nothing. And then he runs into some trouble uh, in the second. So it's four, two, and then he's allowed to hit in the bottom of the second. And when he came up, uh, there was one out, nobody on. So it wasn't like, you know, a runners in scoring position situation. And uh, he didn't last that long in the top of the third, which generally is not what you want. <laughs> you know, like we've talked about this before, you let your guy hit and he did just gets in the next inning but usually when that happens it's like the fifth inning the sixth inning and i get it like davidson was not going deep into this game but you built a big lead it's your third game in a row where you you know basically are gonna have two straight bullpen games somebody's got a pitch i didn't i didn't hate that as much as you might think it's also one of those it was it was it was a really tough decision i i thought i I honestly could see both i realize i'm like sort of like hedging here because it, it kind of is a mistake i talked about before where it was one of those where they let him hit and then his first time in trouble, they took him out. So it was like, if you're really just going to take him out at the center at the first, if you were really going to take him out at the first sign of trouble, 
then you probably should have just pinch hit for him. That said, it was what it was the the bottom of the second. You're not going to use one of your good pinch hitters. So you're right. like, am I really going to use like a good bench bat here when I'm already up? You know, I already have this lead. Like, what's 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 the right approach here? So it's and this is where it comes down to the teams carrying you know whatever 14 pitchers where you have teams that the, the and then you have no bench and so there's no real good solutions there. You're not going to double switch out one of your starters from the game. So it. It, it was kind of a no win. I kind of felt like it was a kind of no win situation yeah. for Snicker there. And then, and then, you know, he only lasts two batters in the third inning, but not entirely his fault because the very first guy up is Altuve, who hits a ground ball and Swanson boots it. You know, he's certainly not helping the pitcher there. And then he walks Altuve. Excuse me, walks Brantley, and in comes Jesse Chavez. And this is sort of where things unravel, right? It gives up double to Correa. Alvarez flies out. Guriel grounds out. Scores a run. That ties the game. And then Freddie Freeman in the bottom of the third, the first guy up. And this is, you know, if you couldn't tell already that Fran Valdez was not going to have it tonight. When Freddie Freeman hit that ball about 900 miles to right field in, I hate to say it, what could possibly be his final home game in Atlanta? I don't think that'll happen, right? But it's possible at least. That's sort of where you're like, okay, well, things are ticking back towards the Braves. Things are going to be okay. And um, AJ Minter kind of gave it up, but I don't, I don't think he pitched that poorly. Like he said, he didn't pitch that poorly. He didn't get lit up that much. And the other big inflection point in this game, and probably the most memorable moment outside of the Grand Slam, is Martin Maldonado drawing a walk in the exact same way that I think I would draw a walk in that situation, which is like, should I have bothered taking the bat to the plate? Because there's absolutely no prayer I'm swinging. He crowded the plate, which I thought was brilliant, because you know he's not going to swing. And Minter just couldn't get it done. And this was after Bregman got intentionally walked. So the way this worked is the top of the fifth uh, against Minter. Correa singles, Alvarez strikes out, Gurriel singles, uh, and Tucker grounds out, right? So two on, two outs. And they walk Alex Bregman. And I think a lot of people had some questions about this. And this kind of hit two different sweet spots for me. I hate walking the bases loaded. Absolutely hate it. This wasn't the worst version of that because the worst version of it is you walk the bases loaded and then bring in a new pitcher and make that guy deal with it. I hate that the most. But I hate walking the bases loaded because you have no margin for error. You know, like you issue a walk, well, that's a run. You throw a wild pitch, that's a run. The only time I ever really like it is when there's such a massive difference between the batter who's coming up and the batter who's after him, which is usually a pitcher. And then you're like, okay, that makes sense. No disrespect to Martin Maldonado. I don't care how cold Alex Bregman is. There's still a pretty big difference between those guys to me. Yeah, I, I in the moment when I was watching it, I didn't hate this intentional walk to be honest with you. I know I agree with you. I don't like walking intentionally walking the bases loaded. Um they didn't gain the platoon advantage out of it. So like I get you know so like I get that. But I was I was like screaming at my TV. I was like, you gotta pinch hit for Maldonado here. Like this is the game. You gotta pinch hit. You got a Ledmus Diaz who on the bench who probably has you know 200 points of OPS against left-handed pitching on Maldonado. Like what are you doing? This is this is the moment. Like you can't mess around here. Um credit to Maldonado. I guess the one thing he actually does well and maybe it's because he knows he actually is pretty good at drawing a walk. His 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 walk rate of eleven percent is like second amongst. Uh, I think Correa is the only uh, the only Astros regular with a higher walk rate than Montanato. So even though he's a terrible hitter, he somehow knows how to, knows how to uh, knows how to um, knows how to draw walks. And Minter used to be really wild. His walk rate's actually gone down the last couple of years and was nine percent this year, which is you know very very reasonable. So from the Braves' perspective. Especially since once they didn't bring in Diaz, I was like, oh, wow, the Braves are going to get out of this. Like, how are they not pinching from Maldonado here? So that was pretty much as bad of a walk as you could you could have. And I've, you've heard me on this uh, podcast 
you know, stand for AJ Minter. I think he's a good relief pitcher, but that was that was as bad as it gets right there. If you pinch it for Maldonado there, who's catching? Uh, Stubbs. It's a it's a trick question, right? Because Jason Castro uh, is actually out on the COVID list and was not available. So Garrett Stubbs was the backup catcher who has 87 career major league plate appearances. Now, again, not that Maldonado is a great hitter, but I, I don't I don't see a scenario even if you're right where Baker actually hits for his catcher in that spot. Yeah, and that, I mean that's the the um, the Castro going on the the COVID the COVID list is it's a, it's actually kind of a big deal from a tactical standpoint because he's their best left-handed pinch hitter and can naturally slot in for for Maldonado who you do want to pinch hit for. And now basically that's basically the option of taking for that reason the option of pinch hitting for Maldonado other than like an absolute like you know ninth inning I need a hit or the season's over is essentially taken off the table. How much did you enjoy uh, Zach Greinke coming up and getting a pinch hit? <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. He is the first pitcher with a pinch hit base hit in the playoffs since Jack Bentley in the 1923 World Series. In case you're wondering how far back we're going with that. And I guess we should at least point out that it is possible that Kendall Graveman batting later on in the game will be the last pitcher batting ever if the DH is adopted. Yes, I know Shohei Otani. He's not the same kind of thing. I don't want to hear it. Uh, I like that a lot. I like Zach Greinke pitching. And then, you know, once the Braves, or excuse me, once the Astros took that lead in the fifth inning, which I, I guess would have been, you know, that sequence we just talked about there with, with uh, Maldonado and then Gonzalez gets a hit, sort of felt like to me that was the end of the game right there. I know Maldonado actually like drove in another run later uh, and created as well, but the last four innings, it kind of felt like that was, it wasn't as close even as it seemed to me. Well, the, the it actually, I mean, I don't want to say the, the Braves like, that Brian Sitker like punted the game, but he very pointedly did not use any of his best relievers after Minter. After they gave up yeah. the lead and fell behind seven five, he used Chris Martin and then Drew Smiley for three innings. So like, I mean, there's still an off day tomorrow, but knowing they go into game six with Tyler Matzik getting two days of rest and Will Smith getting two days of rest, like that's, and Luke Jackson getting two days of rest. That's kind of, I think it almost felt like he was not, as I said, conceding is not the right word, but uh, there was definitely some sense of like, I, I've been really been riding my relievers hard. doesn't look like we're going to win this game. Hopefully Smiley can give us some length and we'll go in with some fresh arms in game six. Also, a lot of, there's been so much talk about the Braves bullpen this postseason. They've been great. Astros bullpen been very good as well. And yesterday, they only gave up one run, right? Or, or they didn't give up any runs yesterday. Actually, Fernando Valdez gave up all five runs. They were uh, they gave six six plus scoreless innings from the from the from the uh, Astros bullpen yesterday, which is which is pretty spectacular when you consider also that Ryan Presley didn't even pitch. Yeah, Yimi Garcia, Jose Arquiti, Phil Maton, it looked great. Stanek uh, and Graveman. I want to offer one prediction about 2022 right here, which is that because Atlanta's bullpen, especially if they win the whole thing, because these guys, you know, the night shift as they're being called, have been so prominent and have been used so much and have looked so good. I think they're all going to be massively overrated headed into next year without considering the effects, you know, A, of their track record to date and B, how much this workload is going to, you know, injure them, not injure them, but affect them next year. And I just feel like none of us are going to remember that. So we have a game six and possibly a game seven tomorrow night in Houston. Max Freed versus, well, that's a good question. I would have thought Urquidy, but he pitched an inning yesterday. Uh, Jake Odorizzi is rested and threw two and a third scoreless innings in game one. But man, is it clear they don't trust him at all. And Dusty Baker said, and I quote, we're down to kind of Luis Garcia at this point. Luis Garcia on short rest. He has one career start on three days rest, kind of, 
uh, back in April against Seattle. He threw five innings, allowed one run, but it was also after a relief appearance, not a start. So it's not really the same thing. He has massive splits each time through the order. Uh, first time through as a starter at 594 OPS, then 681 the second time, 832 the third time. Not that it matters because there's just no way he's going that deep. <laughs> there's no shot. It's going to be a bullpen game where Luis Garcia throws, I don't know, two and two thirds innings. I cannot see another way this goes down unless things go like wildly great or wildly poorly. Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, without having not used Presley and Christian Javier yesterday, those, those guys would probably see almost certain to pitch both almost certain to pitch in game six. Javier was kind of the goat um, of game four, giving up those two home runs, but he, like he actually, he had like an, uh, a five seventy OPS against uh, allowed against righties this year. So him giving up, um, home runs to two back-to-back righties was was a little bit flukish. So I think that there's still be confidence in him to try and give them a couple innings. And you kind of have to assume, okay, if we can make it to game seven, they'll bring back, you know, then they'd have Urquidy to be able to kind of patch together a couple innings. And, you know, you figure it out at that point. It will be interesting to see if they're forced to use Jake Odorizzi at, Odorizzi at some point. It seems like they only trust him in mop-up duty. He pitched mop-up duty in game one. And he pitched pretty well. He pitched two plus innings, scoreless. I mean, it's just one performance, but it feels like at some point they are going to be forced to use him. And I'm curious to see what that moment is. You know, I hate to sound like a crusty old man here, but when you said that Christian Javier was the goat the other night, I was like, hey, he was fantastic. I kind of remember him giving up back-to-back home runs uh, because the youths have taken the word and the emoji goat and it is, you know, greatest of all time. It's no longer he was the, I don't know, the worst pitcher around. Anyway, Max Fried is going to throw for Atlanta and, that would seem like a pretty big advantage because he's one of the better starting pitchers in baseball, except he really has not been good the last two times out. So he's had four postseason starts, six shutout innings against the Brewers. Uh, game one of the NLCS against the Dodgers, he was pretty good, two runs over six innings. Game five, less good, five runs over four and two thirds innings. And in game two against Houston, six runs in five innings. Now, I think that maybe overstates what happened to him. That was the game where he allowed like five. Uh, singles in one inning and some of them were like seeing eye hits they weren't all rockets so that's fine but even so I don't know if you're going into this with a huge amount of confidence in him and again it doesn't matter if he's throwing a no hitter he's not going nine innings you know you need him to get through like 18 ish batters 20 batters something like that but I did look into what happened to him in the postseason right? Two very good starts and then two not so great starts and there's some pretty clear trends here Uh, two of them actually First of all, against uh, the, the Brewers and the Dodgers in his good start, he was throwing a ton of strikes, like pitches in the zone about 60% of the time. In the last two games, it's like 47% of the time. And if you look at his rate of four-seam fastballs in his first two games, it was about 45% of the time. And then 33% in the second Dodgers game and 24% against the Astros. He actually threw nearly 61% breaking balls against Houston, which was the highest breaking ball rate of any game started in his career. The previous high was against Pittsburgh on July 5th, where he allowed six earned runs <laughs> in five innings. Is that a change because it's late in a long season uh, and, you know, he's gassed? Maybe. Is it because the Astros crush fastballs and he's just his fastball is OK? It's not great. I think it's kind of that. And for that reason, I'm not sure I love this matchup for the Braves here. No. And I, I went and looked to see, like, you know, you had mentioned this to me when we were discussing the discussing the show before we started recording. And I was like, oh, I'm going to look into this a little bit and the, to see maybe it has his, any trends of his velo being down or his curveball spin rate being down. Nothing, nothing of that sort. Granted, his fastball, his fastball velo in his last start was like, if you count all the starts this year postseason 
And regular season, it was the fifth, I think the fifth highest he's had this season is average forcing velos. So like, it doesn't seem to be that you're right. It might just be, Hey, th- these guys crush breaking balls. I mean, fastballs. So I'm going to try and throw my breaking ball. Cause it's a good pitch. I'm curious to see how he adjusts his approach for game six, because you're right. It's, it's a, it's a very good matchup for the, um, the Astros, especially now they can go back to home and they don't have to worry about Jordan Alvarez playing the outfield anymore. Yeah. And I like those trends, by the way, because there's something you can look for like real fast, you know, like you'll know by the end of the first inning, which approach is he taking here? And is that likely to help him succeed? We will take a quick break and we'll come back and uh, hit on some other World Series notes. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Here's one in the right. Back at the wall, the game is tied. Home run, Swanson, 2-2 in the seventh. 2-1 pitch. Driven in the air to left. Back at the wall, it is gone. Back to back. Braves take the lead. 3-2. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Matt, you just mentioned that as the World Series goes back to Houston, the DH is back into play, which means that the Astros can kind of roll out the optimal lineup, which is Alvarez in left. Excuse me, Alvarez at DH, Brantley in left, uh, Tucker in right, and then either Siri or Chaz McCormick in center, which is like a really you know strong collection of outfielders. For all three games in the National League Park without the DH, they did put Alvarez in left, Tucker in center, Brantley in right. And it never really burned them, I don't think. Like, there were moments, you know, like Alvarez, I can't remember now if it was last night or the day before, I think it was last night, definitely threw to the wrong base, you know, and cost this team a base. Not not great. We discussed a little bit about whether a really good outfielder robs that home run. I'm not so sure, but it's possible. But otherwise, it was it was fine. Like, was there ever a point where you looked at that Houston outfield and you said, oh, this defensive alignment is killing them. They got to change it. No, but there were actually, there were two moments. They didn't actually burn them, but that were, he made a couple of, there were a couple of pretty bad mistakes. So in game four, there was a play, it was in the sixth inning when Austin Riley had an RBI single and he just, now you could blame, but I think Bregman's supposed to be the cutoff man there and Bregman wasn't there. Um, but that's because there was no chance of throwing, I think it was Eddie Rosario out. And so he threw home and there was no one there to cut it off. And the ball just kind of bounced to, to no man's land and the, and the base runners moved up. And that was pretty bad. It almost, I think it almost looked like Bre- Bregman's thought process was, well, I'm just going to go cover third because he's got no chance of throwing this guy out at home. And um, the, the runners moved up anyway. So that was bad. Of course, neither of the runners came around to score. So it didn't actually burn them, but it was a mistake. Similarly, in the first inning of game five, there was a play where he threw um, to third base when he had no chance, and the runner moved up. Right. A second, and then, but then of course there was a walk, and then the grand slam. So that, I mean, th- those runs would have scored anyway, I guess. So it wasn't like that was that mistake actually burned them. So they, I guess, to that extent, they kind of got away with it, and now they're they're 
they're back in Houston, then they could just say, you're the DH. You don't have to worry about it. And you do wonder if that affects him at the plate and makes, I mean, he's been, he's been bad. Probably the biggest reason the, the Astros have been struggling is the fact that Alvarez more so than Bregman has, has been, you know, pretty, pretty bad this series. He, he has one hit, like one, and it was a triple somehow. Um, I agree with you. Alex Bregman is a weird case. So he got dropped in the lineup yesterday and, you know, it was a little bit better, but I, I just haven't seen his issues. They're not going to be resolved by hitting lower. I actually think it was just about having him hit less often. And if you go back to, you know, his season, we talked a little bit about this leading into the World Series. Like he's been he was OK, like he was good, not great. Same as last year. You know, it's it, 2019 was his last very good season. And if you look at what happened to him this year, uh, he only played 91 games in the regular season. He missed like two full months because he hurt his left quad. So he missed like, you know, half of June, all of July, half of August. And when he uh, he came back, he was OK, like a 760 OPS He's not great, but you know it's it's down from what he was before. And if you look at like what's happened to him, it's not about strikeouts. So I went back to the middle of September, like the final two weeks of the season, and fourteen games, sixty three plate appearances, three strikeouts, which is like unbelievably good. That's fantastic. He also hit one thirteen, two thirty eight, two twenty six. As we've all been saying forever, contact is fine. Good contact is what actually matters. <laughs> you know, he had like a terrible hard hit rate. And I was reading some of the articles today and I hadn't noticed this before, but in Sports Illustrated today, uh, Carlos Correa said that Bregman hurt his wrist. And this is a quote, Bregman hurt his right wrist in September and that plays a huge factor. And then Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic wrote that Bregman took early batting practice trying to incorporate a two-handed finish to his swing. And then Bregman said, I've got a really weak top hand right now which is all fascinating to me. I could not find, like there wasn't a hit by pitch. I couldn't really find, you know, a particular issue or event or something where he might've, you know, hurt himself. Like whatever happened, I happened somewhere, but I couldn't find it. And then if you look at, you know, like I said, the last two weeks of the season, tons of contact, but it's all bad contact. And he's been a month now into the postseason. Clearly whatever's going on is affecting him to the point where I don't, it doesn't matter to me where you hit him. I just don't expect much from him. Agreed. I think at this point, that anything that, I mean, when he hit that, he hit that double yesterday into the gap. It was almost, it was, it was almost surprising, which is kind of sad, sad to say. And that's the issue with the Astros lineup right now is when you get to that the bottom of that lineup, it is a deep lineup, but it it's a deep lineup, but it's not a deep team. So it used to be like, well, we go seven deep, and then the bottom couple spots are really not very strong. And now it's kind of like with the way Bregman is, it's if he's hitting seventh, it's the bottom three spots are not really strong. So you, you kind of really need. Alvarez to do something in the number four spot because um, they can't they can't count on that that depth carrying them like they could have in uh, in, in other situations. Do you have any expectations for the final two games? I mean, maybe just one game, but for as the series moves back to Houston, um, expectations. Um, I expect the Astros to continue to try and run on the Braves. Yes, not, maybe not quite as much as the. Dodgers did, but it is now normally, you know, one of the things like the the big reveals of Statcast, not the like, not that Statcast revealed this, I should say Hammer Home, is how much stolen bases are about the pitcher as much as, if not more, the catcher. But in the case of the Braves, it's pretty clear it's the catcher. Um, you know, the, the teams are 17 for now eight now 18 for 18 against the Braves in stolen bases this postseason. And Travis Darneau is two for 46, I think, in throwing out base dealers this season, regular. And post the Astros are now five for five this series, and it feels like that's going to keep coming up in big spots. And it's 
been pretty it's almost remarkable the the Braves have been able to survive it because it's not like Darno's hitting that well to justify it. Did I did I tell you we um by we I mostly mean Tom Tango are working on a, a metric that's like pretty nearly righty that will show exactly that like which catchers are being put in good or bad spots by their pitchers to throw runners out and it's going to tell that story about Darno. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm curious to see it. And by the way, just so you know, because I, I looked this up because um, I was curious because I saw someone tweet out. I think it was Joel Sherman the t- two for forty five number, and then then the the Braves stole again. So Astros stole again. So it was two forty six. If you go to Baseball Reference, it actually says he's thrown out five base runners this year, but. Some sources like Baseball Reference also count pickoffs mm. as caught stealings when that catcher is behind the plate. So, depending if you want to give him credit for that or not, but when it comes to situations where he has actually had to throw to second base, it's two for. Well, I guess maybe you say two for forty-five because at least that stolen base yesterday was actually on the pitcher on a a, bl- a blown pickoff play. Either way, it's not good. No, absolutely not. Um, I agree with you totally about what you said about the Houston lineup. The other thing I'm looking for is when you look at Atlanta. Uh, they've gotten some big moments out of maybe some unexpected guys, right? Like Darno has two home runs. Solaire has two home runs. Uh, but I, I need to see a little bit from Ozzy Albies. I feel like he hasn't been very good in this series and it's sort of flown under the radar a little bit because the Braves were up and there was enough to talk about with their pitching and with the Houston lineup. But Albies has just three hits. Uh, and, were- uh, and also Swanson as well, just three hits. The middle infield hasn't done much. I think, and I was going to say, sorry to cut you off. I think all three of Albie's hits were infield hits from game one. Um, So it's not even like he's hitting the ball hard. It was interesting to me to see Albie's hit right-handed against Zach Greinke the other day. Albie's is way better against right as a, from the right side than he is from the left side. And I do wonder, and this is obviously down, down the road, if he will ever kind of give up switch hitting as he, as he, as he, as he gets older. Granted, he's, he's still a pretty good, he still has like a 700 plus OPS from the left side, but it's like he's over a thousand from the right side. Now, granted, he has the platoon advantage in, in those situations, but it's pretty clear that he just swings the bat much better from the right side. So I do wonder, especially when he, even he against certain, I'm guessing, you know, soft tossing right-handers thinks that he's better from the right side. You wonder if that will ever become his just dominant side, no matter what. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. We're not actually like doing rants this week, but when that happened, I was a little frustrated by the fact that every discussion I saw about it was focused on Zach Greinke and about his platoon splits as though it was something Albies was just doing to attack the pitcher and that he himself does not have these massive platoon splits. It seemed to me, yes, you want to say he's the right guy to do it against because he doesn't throw that hard. He's, you know, half a knuckleballer at this point. Like, that's totally fine. But it was not about attacking, you know, Granky, I thought it was about what is best for Albies. And I agree with you that I think at some point he probably should go with the Cedric Mullins route and just, you know, give up switch hitting and do the thing that makes you uh, the best. So we will have, again, a day off tonight, and then we will have World Series Game 6 on Tuesday night. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.